Thanks for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. Our hope is that it helps you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Well, good morning, church. Let's click or open our Bibles to John chapter 14. We're going to start in John 14 this morning, and then we're going to go to Romans chapter 1. Uh, in just a few moments. If you're visiting with us, my name's Mark. I get to be one of the ministers here. And you've joined us in the second week of a series we've entitled Kingdom Answers to an Honest Question. We're dealing with questions that people are asking us in the coffee shops of the world, at the dinner tables, at places of work, when we're connecting with our, our friends and they have criticism against the church or are challenged by the church, uh, these questions pop up often. They're not just straw men that we wanna knock over. They're actually realities, questions that I find as a pastor that are fascinating. And the reason we're doing this series is not so we can do a we're right and they're wrong mentality. That doesn't serve anybody. It's not humble and it's not beneficial. What we really wanna do is allow each one of us to understand that there is nothing to be ashamed of when it comes to the gospel. That God is often misunderstood and because of that, these questions are birthed. So how do we answer them effectively, honestly, and scripturally? And this is what we want to do is prepare ourselves to be able to stand up for the gospel in a loving and peaceful way that brings people to know who Jesus is. The question that we want to answer this week is what about those who have never heard of the good news of Jesus? Do they have hope? What's going to happen to them? And and does this all really matter? And we'll answer that question we hope this morning. Now, a little bit of a commercial in advance is a significant part of this entire series, these uh, six weeks. Five weeks are going to be answering questions, and on the sixth week, we're going to have a forum where Elijah, Michael DeFazio, and myself will be up here answering questions that you bring to us from the series. So we want to be able to respond with you. But in the first five messages, it's very, very important that you stay connected. The first question helps us answer the second. The first and second help us answer the third and throughout the series. So I'm going to encourage you. We don't want you to just pop in once a month and and try to figure out where we're at. We really want to encourage you. If you can't be here on a Sunday, come on Thursday. Same message, same teaching. If you're normally a Thursday person, we encourage you to come on Sundays and connect when you can't be here. That's why we have both of those opportunities for you. To pick up the podcast, go on our YouTube channel, uh, go on our webpage. There's multiple ways for you to stay connected to this teaching because I believe this series helps you help your family members, your friends, and your coworkers. So please stay connected to this the best of your ability. So one of the things that we're always gonna rely on is we have to let the claims of Jesus speak for themselves. We have to let Jesus tell us who he is. Timothy Keller recently tweeted, I don't think he did, but one of his minions did, and I loved it. It said, if Jesus rose from the dead, you have to accept all he said. If he didn't, then don't worry about anything he said. Jesus himself is the foundational piece on which we engage our own souls and engage the world we live in. The claims Jesus made were so significant, in fact, that that's the reason the religious leaders put him to death. They didn't put him to death because he was a miracle worker. They didn't put him to death because he had a large following. They put him to death because he claimed to be God. They believed in the transcendence of God, just like I do, and I hope you do, that God is above all creation. That God is bigger than and creator of all. And so because of that, like we just saying, all of this is true. But if it's true, the Jews were so aware of the transcendency of God and his nature being above and other than that they would not even say or write his name for fear that they would misrepresent him. So then you have this moment that Jesus comes in 
And Jesus begins to refer to himself with God-like characteristics. He says things like he's gonna judge all men, that he was there before Abraham, that he was there creating the world. They understood that his transcendence, he was talking about being God-like, if not God himself. Now, many critics will tell you, well, you never find a passage in the scripture where Jesus said, I am God. No, he wasn't that direct, but indirectly and subtly, because of the circumstances he was in, Jesus said he was without saying he was. He talked about his transcendence. He talked about his power. He alluded over and over and over to who he was as a deity. Now, his Jewish enemies picked it up, but today, I guess we're smarter than them. And we assume because he never said the words, I am God, that he never intended to be. It's just not true. Jesus made big, big claims about who he was. He's headed to Jerusalem for the final Passover, where Pilate will ask him, are you God? And, and Jesus' response is, it's as you've said. He let Pilate say it for him. But in this moment, he's heading to Jerusalem to die because his claim to be God would be the reason they would put him to death. He comforts his disciples and he says these words. John 14, verse three. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. And Thomas, who always gets busted for seemingly saying dumb things, is actually one of the brightest disciples. His questions are insightful. He says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how do we know the way? You've told us that we know where you're going and we don't know, and if you're not here to lead us, how will we get there? And then Jesus makes another claim. He makes a claim to be a restorer of the relationship back to God, to bridge the gap that was broken by sin. He says in the sixth verse, just the first two words, I am. He is making a claim about himself. This is a reoccurring claim in Jesus' world. He says things like, I'm the shepherd, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, I'm the gate, I'm the resurrection and the life. He is unashamed to tell you who he is. Jesus is not wandering through the world trying to figure out how to be God. Jesus is telling us what he does comes from who he is. He said, I know who I am. And I know why I'm here. Yes, Jesus was humble and gentle with the best and worst of people he encountered. But do not mistake gentleness and humility for a lack of power, a lack of intention, and a lack of understanding. You see, when Thomas says, we don't know how to get into this kingdom, Jesus does not give him something to do. Jesus gives Thomas himself. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. To answer our question this morning, we have to let Jesus answer it, which will be hard for us to do because we know what we want the answer to be. We want it to be based on our feelings. We want it to be based on our desires. We want it to be based on some fears we have about those who don't understand this. We have it based on our sense of fairness. I'm here to tell you, we have to let Jesus speak where only Jesus can speak. And we need to listen when he does. You see, Jesus is saying, I'm the way to the Father, to that restored relationship that was shattered in the Garden of Eden. In verse seven, he says, if you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus said, pay attention to what I'm doing because what I'm doing is the work of God. And if you wanna know God, look at Jesus. 
You'll understand the heart of God, the mind of God. You'll understand many, many things that he's revealed. We won't know everything about God, but we know what we need to know through Jesus. You see, Jesus says, I alone am the one who restores you to the Father. We know the full love, the goodness, the justice of God in a way that we would not know without Jesus. And that's why he came. So for us to answer this primary question this morning... We have to answer another question first. I know it may seem like I'm being evasive or vague, but the core question cannot be answered until we get something figured out in our own hearts, I believe. The question is, the first question is this. Is the gospel of Jesus truly necessary for every person? It's a question we Christians have to ask. Is the good news really good news? Is the good news good for some and not others? Are there some people who don't need Jesus? These are questions that we have to ask and answer. Is Jesus saying he's the only way because, you know, he's God and he can do whatever he wants? I get to set the rules. Like when my big brother was babysitting when my mom and dad left and Steve decided that my bedtime was no longer 8.30, it was 7. <laughs> because for that two hours they went to see the Godfather, he became God. Is this what Jesus is doing? No. Jesus is saying, I am doing what the Father has asked me to do and it is good for everybody. He's not just offering us facts about God. He's telling us about the reality of the world we live in. And he's giving us insight into the heart of God. And I believe Jesus brings good news to every single person. And it's good news that every single person needs. So let's go to Romans chapter one. I'm gonna sound a bit like a lawyer, which isn't a bad thing. I know some good lawyers. In fact, I see a couple of you in the room. But what I mean by this is I'm gonna give you some caveats and in advance. Romans chapter 1 verses 18 through 32 is one of the richest passages in, in the book of Romans because Paul is establishing a case. His case is none of us are unaware of God. None of us are unaccountable to God. We live in a world that says, no, no, if people are ignorant, they're ignorant and they're not to be applied. I want you to listen to Paul, Paul's argument. We're going to begin by looking at verses 18 through 21. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godliness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God, know what Jesus came to do, show us the Father. What may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, having been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. What's Paul's point? He's making the point that we elaborated on last week. That's why answering the first question helps us answer the second. Our condition of being guilty of sinning against a person of God is not because of accidents or mistakes, it's because of choices. We have rejected creator God, we have rejected the goodness of God, and we are an ungrateful people for all that God has given us, the gift of life. There's not a single person who will stand on the judgment day, as we learned last week, and look at God and go, uh-uh. The Bible says our mouths will be quiet because his judgments are just and justifiable. What does it mean to know God? Sociologically, you can look. Every culture that's ever existed worships gods. Whether it's plural or singular, they're aware that there is a greater power. And because of creation itself, Paul says, God has revealed that there is a greater power than all of us. We did not choose to be born, we were born. What started that process? 
There's so many questions to be found out there that only make sense when you stop and realize that there is a greater power than us that exists. So we should be aware of that power and grateful to that power, but we're not. So Paul says we are all going to be judged not by a surprising standard. No one is ever going to stand before God and go, I had no idea. Because you won't be held to what you didn't know, you will be held to what you did know. And Paul says we're all without excuse. You see, one of the things we learned last week, it's easy to put God on trial because you won't put yourself on trial. It's easy to blame God for judgment when you assume you're innocent of it. And so because Paul has said there's no surprise standard, he then goes from verses 30, or 22 to 31. And I have to give a caveat here as well. I'm not gonna read all of these verses, not because I'm afraid of the issue, not because we don't believe that this is important today. It's vitally important. But the problem is, I think sometimes we Christians like to pick our favorite sin that we don't commit out of a, a bunch of verses and say, you ought to hammer on this, Mark. Well, when can I hammer on you? If, if Christianity becomes, let's get after those that are different than us, we've misunderstood this whole conversation. What Paul does in verses 22 to 32 is he shows us the spiral when we don't know who God is and we're ungrateful to God, we begin a spiral of sin that makes us God and it sends us into depravity. He gives examples of sexual sin, both homosexual and heterosexual. Church doesn't like to talk about those two because we like to hammer on one and not the others. Pornography, adultery, fornication, it doesn't matter who the combatants are. It's wrong, it's evil, it's debased. It's not what we're created for. And then he goes, not only from that, he then talks about how the way we slander and gossip and disrespect authority in our life. Not only do we, do we treat one another as commodities for our own pleasure, but then we can debase others and treat them as lesser so we feel superior. And Paul draws this incredible argument. I encourage you to read it this week. Spend some time in Romans 1, 18 through 32, and you'll realize that God is a just God, and there is a standard of light available to all of us, and we will only answer to what we knew. And yet we all know there's a God. And Paul says we were, are without excuse. My friend Michael DeFazio said recently, he said, no one comes out of these verses clean. No single person can read 18 through 32 of Romans chapter 1 and go, huh, got him, didn't he? Because the, the them is us each and every one of us. One of our elders Wednesday night when we were walking through this, Doug Meyer said, there's about four sermons in these verses. I said, well, if you talk as fast as Michael, but for me, it'd be six. <laughs> and I'd still leave good meat on the bones. This is a powerful passage. I don't run through it because I don't want to deal with it. I want to run through it because I want to make the point this morning and show you where it's made. Look at verse 28. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, to, dis to respect God and honor God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. God says, if this is what you want to do, do it. But understand the accountability that comes with it. Verse 32, he concludes his argument by saying, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. It's our culture, isn't it? Tell someone they can't do what they're passionate about doing and God's out of step. God got old, times passed him by. He couldn't anticipate such a brilliant group as us. So he set a bunch of rules for, you know, those mouth breathing people, not us. In reality, here we stand before God without excuse. 
And then not only do we do what we want to do in the darkness, but we actually support people who are doing it in the daylight. And Paul takes the first three chapters of Romans and he says, because we all know God, he said to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, he said, you know through creation that there is a God and you do not honor him. And he said to the Jews, you had a special revelation. God came down to you and made you a special people so you could spread this to the entire world and you rejected him too. So he says at the end in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You all, we all failed. That's good news. So is the good news of Jesus truly necessary for every person? The answer is yes. When we understand the true condition of every human soul, what Jesus brings is good news. It's not rules, regulations, and restrictions. To Christians who believe that basically they have to become a Christian to pay back God for all the bad things they've ever done, you've misunderstood the gospel. It's not good news to you, it's duty. But I believe when understood properly, when I know the condition of my soul and I know what Jesus offers me, I can only find it to be good news. Why? Because there are two needs of every person's human condition. These are two needs. Now, here's the funny thing I'm gonna try to do, right? There are tens of thousands, that's not an exaggeration. There are tens of thousands of pages written on these two principles I'm about to share in four minutes. The reason I'm doing it is to make an initial point. I can't explain it fully if you gave me 10 years, but I want to whet your appetite. There are two conditions of the human soul that everyone needs a remedy for. We might even call it the double cure. The first is our sins will be rightfully punished. See the notes from last week. We will stand before a righteous judge. Every thought, action, and attitude will be laid bare. Not only will there be an accounting of what we've done, God will tell us why we did it. And when the judgment is rendered and all will be found guilty, we will realize he is a just God. We will know he was right. Every other religion in the world offers you a way to get over your guilty feelings. But don't mistake guilt for guilty feelings because you can be guilty and not feel a thing. Every religion tells you how to get over your guilty feelings. Christianity is the only answer to the actual guilt. You see, keeping the law after you've broken the law does not absolve you from the penalty of the law you've broken. Being innocent once doesn't overcome being guilty once. And this is what the death of Jesus on the cross brought us. The Bible will call it justification. Our second need is our lives must be freed from our slavery to sin. Sin has damaged our heart, soul, mind, and strength, which means it's hard for us to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We need a power that breaks us free from the slavery to sin. Or as Paul would say, we need to be broken free from the dying flesh and a new life born into the spirit. We call this regeneration and sanctification, two different ways in which God frees us from sin. We need that too. Having your past forgiven does not give you the strength to continue on and entering into the new kingdom and the new life. We need something. This is what God gives us in the Holy Spirit. This is when, believe, when you come into a faith relationship with Jesus Christ, you become filled with the Holy Spirit and his presence brings new birth, born of water in the Spirit. Sin has damaged us. We are dying in our sin and we need new life. 
This is what the Holy Spirit brings. Is the gospel of Jesus truly necessary for every person? My answer is yes, because the gospel of Jesus is the only satisfactory solution to my unsolvable problem. It's the only thing I cannot do for myself. I cannot pay the penalty of sin and survive. And I cannot regenerate my heart on my own. My good actions don't change my darkness. It doesn't change the slavery I have. You see, no other philosophy of religion can mend the broken human condition. Now this may bring offense. I'm not trying to bring offense, I'm trying to make a point. Muhammad's teachings cannot cleanse you of your sin. It cannot forgive you for your past. The teachings of Buddha cannot regenerate your soul to overcome your enslavement to sin. It can only give you a new set of laws that you might be able to keep and actually be a good person by keeping them. The intentions are not evil. They're just unsatisfactory. In every human religion, however they define salvation, it will always be on human works, human merit, and human achievement. I don't say this in a snarky way, like I'm so much smarter than all of them. I am so grateful someone introduced me to Jesus, or I would have spent my life trying to be a better version of me, and it would have accomplished nothing of value. You see, being good in the future won't fix your past or bring you a new soul. Being smart won't meet your need. Being sorry won't meet your need. Doing acts of restitution won't meet your need. What does? 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The gospel is the power of God, not the power of me. The gospel is the sacrifice of Jesus, not just the sacrifice of me. The gospel is the hope of coming to life and being reborn in the spirit. It is not by my efforts making up for what I can't make up for. Jesus did not come to show us a way, Thomas. Jesus said, I am the way. I am going to do this work for you. And then I'm going to do this work in you. And the gospel is not only good news, The gospel is our only hope. So by answering the question, is the gospel of Jesus truly good for every person, we can now answer the question, and what about those who have never heard of the good news of Jesus? What do we do with those who don't know that Jesus is the only real answer to their condition? Is there hope? Remember, the answer is not found in what we want. The answer is not found in what we wish. It's not found in what we find fair. The answer has to be found in the claims of Jesus. He is the one who knows. Look at John 3 with me. If you turn in your Bibles to John 3, verse 35. How does Jesus' claim help us form our understanding of our answer to this question? John 3, 35. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Jesus, are you really the only way? Yeah. Jesus said, I'm the only way to overcome the penalty of your sin, and I'm the only way to free you from slavery to sin. None of our own efforts do this. 
In fact, Isaiah says, all of our righteousness is but filthy rags. Our best efforts are trash compared to our condition. This answer's hard to hear, isn't it? A good pastor wouldn't preach a sermon on Mother's Day. What was he thinking? Because what it does for every single one of us is right now, I believe the Holy Spirit's working in this place that someone's come to mind. A good, kind, loving person. Not an evil, corrupt person, but someone you care about passionately who's trying to get their way to God by being good, by being kind, by being generous. And they are good and kind and generous and they're good people and they have great value and they're made in the image of God and we want them to have what we believe Jesus has given us and yet our hearts hurt. Because as we said last week, good people will not be in heaven and some bad people will because of the grace of Jesus Christ. So I wanna give you a couple of things to bolster you today. First is this, God will always do the right thing. I would have expected in a group of Christians, somebody would have agreed. Some of you are so frightened right now. How do we go to lunch after this? Trust me, we'll be okay. Think about that with me. Will God do, always do the right thing? Do you know his character won't allow him not to? God will not cheat or bend the rules. God will always do the just thing. He'll always do the right thing. He'll always do the kind thing. My Bible says that God desires that no one should perish, but all would come to everlasting life. That's his heart. That's his passion. You believe that? Look at Jesus. Jesus came to go to the cross for that reason. God is for us, not against us. And God will always do the right thing. Secondly, you and I do not know enough to put someone in heaven or hell. We do not have enough information. My Bible says there are certain things we can't judge, and one of those things we can't judge is we cannot judge the eternal destination of anybody. That's not our role. Our role is to listen, to obey, to trust, and to grow. And so because of that, I'm not saying let's not have this conversation. I'm simply saying because I believe God will do, always do the right thing when God has asked us to share the light of Jesus Christ to those dying in the darkness, we should trust that. That's what we should do. We should tell them that there is an answer to their greatest needs, that nothing else, money, sex, relationships, power, job titles, legacy, none of those solve our core problem. But preacher, what about babies and children? What happens to them? Some religious groups teach that child dies, their original sin, they go straight to hell. I don't believe that at all. I believe Romans 5 tells me that the work of the second Adam, Jesus, overcame the primary work of the first Adam, who sinned and broke our world. Because of that, I believe because God always does the right thing. And if you want to have this conversation, you're going to have to buy me a big, big cup of tea because you need some hours. But I want to send you to Romans 5 if you want to know where this foundation comes from. I believe that someone before the age of accountability, someone who not, cannot be held culpable to their choices because they don't know, even those that are mentally handicapped and cannot make these choices for themselves. Do you know what I believe, church? I believe God always does the right thing, and I think the grace of Jesus covers those who don't know what they're doing. God has no intention of sending everyone to hell because he can. He moved heaven and earth to show us a way away from that judgment so he could bring us life. What about the pygmies in Africa? It's funny. Every time I've done this here, people have giggled. Well, you've never been at a Bible college late at night eating a pizza you shouldn't be eating after David Letterman. That's an old story. 
Because you know what it always was? Well, what about the pygmies in Africa? And I grew up thinking, well, if they're pygmies in Africa and they don't know about Jesus, maybe we should spare them what we know so they're not held accountable to it and they can just walk ignorantly into heaven because, you know, this Christianity thing gets really weird at times. Because I didn't understand Romans 1, 18 through 32. That there's not a single person who's ever going to stand before God and be innocent. They had enough to know what to do right and chose not to do right. Take away the times they didn't know. None of us stand before God innocent. They will be held accountable for what they knew and what they did with what they knew. But because I believe the Bible teaches I can't get there on my own merit, I should not leave someone to try to get there on their own merit. I cannot let them blindly go into saying, well, I'm a good person. I have these conversations regularly with people. A preacher, I don't have to go to church. I don't have to be active in the kingdom. I'm a good person. I give more money than, and I know the people who go to your church. And they sit back going, I'm better than most. You're probably right. But it doesn't handle your sin guilt. And it doesn't handle your slavery to sin. We cannot rescue them ourselves. We need a savior. You see, the goodness of the gospel is good for every person's every need. And without the work of Jesus, our greatest needs are unanswered. It's a hard answer, isn't it? You see, I want you to think it this way with me. The question is not, why is there only one way? The real question is, how is there any way at all? Because none of us deserve this. Because I believe God will always do the right thing and Jesus is the evidence of that. It has to fall on the character of Jesus. The scripture teaches no other principle. As a teacher of the scriptures, I can tell you what I wished would happen. And I could tell you what I think would be awesome if it happened, but I can tell you I have to trust the one who walked through death's door and walked out of that tomb and proved he was transcendent. And he says, no one gets to the Father but through me. Now, should God in his wisdom that surpasses all of ours together make exceptions to this rule based on what he knows of a person's faith, such as those who lived before Jesus. If God in his wisdom makes an assessment of a person's faith and finds it to be saving faith in the plan of God, then guess what? God's gonna do the right thing. And we must trust that. And I do, how about you? I trust that God told us truth because I believe that God will always do the right thing Then I need to get in on the right things God's asked me to be a part of. If your heart hurts over this, because you love someone who doesn't have a real lasting hope right now, it's based on their own merit, then you will have actually understood the fundamental calling of the church. You see, Jesus did not call us into a community so we could get ours. Jesus called us into a community after we've already gotten our double cure so that we can go out into the world and proclaim to people in India and in Japan and people in Albuquerque and people in the four states area. You see, the reason we plant churches is not so we feel good about ourselves because we have a message. People need the double cure and on their own, they can't find it. And in the philosophies of a broken world, they only become better versions of themselves and the core issue of their soul is unanswered. But not only... Uh, it's our sin taken care of and strength to go forward in the new life. But listen to me, church. The good news is good news because it brings hope in a life worth living. It brings hope in a purpose that matters. It brings a purpose that benefits others. 
and it brings a hope in love that heals and restores. See, for those of you who have never dealt with your sin and never dealt with your slavery to sin, those are harsh terms. Pride will make us bristle and go, well, that's not me. Ask your heart the truth. We're not saying you're despicable. We're just saying your human condition is broken like mine. And I couldn't repair it myself. There's nothing I could do to overcome that I shattered the glass and I couldn't see myself anymore in it. And Jesus restored me because I shattered that glass. And he replaced that glass with a new vision, a new heart that sees him. And in the reflection, it's no longer about me, it's about him. You see then, not only do we are cleansed into the blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit that we might walk in newness of life, the double cure. I can offer you that this day or any day until Jesus returns, that Jesus is the double cure. For those of you who have received this gift in Jesus, you, can, you and I cannot say we truly believe in the good news of Jesus Christ if we refuse to share it. It's time for us to get serious about the needs of people. Listen to the claims of Jesus and go in the same love and mercy in which he came. I'd like to read a piece of poetry that became a song. And I would like to do it as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. Do not touch the elements. Remember, I can hear you opening the cellophane. <laughs> so if we're gonna deal with your sin, let's start right now. Just grab the element and hold it for a second. Because it might be better today we don't take it than to hurry. Listen to this truth. This is a summation, a piece of poetry written as a summation of the book of Romans. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress, helpless I look to thee for grace. Vile I to your fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Today as we eat the flesh and drink the blood of Jesus, we proclaim of his death until he comes again. We proclaim freedom. We proclaim life. We proclaim grace. Let's eat and drink together, remembering the privilege it is ours to be washed by his blood. Thanks again for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. We hope that this teaching is helping you discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. If you're interested in learning more about Christ Church, visit us online at cco.church.